Welcome to Rates and Barrels, episode number 70. It is February 18th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris. On this episode, we are continuing our positional breakdown series with a move across the diamond over to third base. Before we get started with that, just a quick heads up. We are available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere that you want to listen to podcasts. So if you're enjoying this show on a platform that allows you to rate and review it, we'd really appreciate that. It goes a long way towards supporting the show. Some of you might be listening to this show for the very first time. If you are, welcome. And if you're not already a subscriber to The Athletic, you can get 40% off a subscription at theathletic.com slash rates and barrels. Let's just get right at this. You know, Third base is a deep position this year, very top-heavy as well. So plenty of quality options early, plenty of good options in the mid-tier, even a few interesting sleepers that we can get to a little bit later on. But my first question for you as you start to look at the board this year if you look at the NFBC ADPs since February 1st, there's a cluster of five in the first two rounds. It includes Alex Bregman, Nolan Arenado, Jose Ramirez, Anthony Rendon, and Raphael Devers, uh, a group of players that I think at various points we've discussed throughout the offseason. But is there anyone in that group who really stands out to you as a possible bust candidate or someone that might fail to live up to that high price tag? It's interesting to me that Devers is so has pushed so far up in these rankings, and I wonder how much depends on. I know it's, he's not projected to have a lot of steals, but I do. You know, he is projected to steal, uh, and so therefore he has a positive points value in this in the stolen base section. Whereas, you know, all the guys other than Jose Ramirez around him have negatives there, and I just wonder. You know, I kind of feel like a guy who steals eight bases against uh, 16 attempts um, is not really a good bet to steal seven to nine, as the projections say. I think he could steal three to five, um, making him much more of a zero in that category. But uh, high batting average, uh, lots of home runs. So, you know, I think he can hit 30 again. Um, I doubt he'll have the otherworldly runs and RBI totals that he had last year, but the team is still pretty good. I don't think it's, I'm not talking about any sort of real collapse, but um, uh, it's just a thought that occurred to me when I was looking at that group. I, otherwise, I don't, you know, uh, and then Bregman, I think deserves to be talked about a little bit. I don't necessarily think that he'll lose a lot in terms of on the field play. Maybe. Maybe a little bit, um, but there is the very real possibility that he's going to get plunked. A lot. Yeah, and I feel like he's the focal point almost. Like, people seem to have, I mean, I know there's some Carlos Correa back and forth with people, but in general, the media has, has seemed to label him as contrite and honest and have sort of talked about his sincerity. Whereas Bregman is the one who stood up there at the press conference and gave the most canned, you know, high school speech I've ever seen. And I mean, I, that was, I think that was on PR. They should never have done the press conference part. Players are not good at that. The, it got a lot better once they got inside the clubhouse. But since he kind of was the, you know, putting the fingers together uh, to remember each point, um, you know, high school speech guy, I feel like Bregman, and also because he's been so cocky in the past, I feel like Bregman will be at the center of this he'll get plunked a few times and the more often you get plunked the higher your risk is of injury and i think you probably want to adjust your plate appearances for bregman south of 658 as they are now 
I think where I'm at with this is it's the kind of thing that breaks ties. Or if it if you looked at players who were very similar in value and you add this factor, it might bring Bregman to the bottom of a cluster. You know, if you thought Bregman versus Arenado was a toss up months ago and, and now this has all happened, come to light, applying what you're discussing, you know, now you would take Arenado over Bregman, at least I would, whereas going into draft season that wasn't really on the table. So you look at him versus Jose Ramirez. They do slightly different things because Jose Ramirez runs a lot more. Maybe he falls below Ramirez. I don't know if he falls much further than that. I don't know if he's going to go any later than like Rendon or Devers in most leagues, and I'm not sure that he should. But I think we are right to at least consider the possibility that being the league's biggest villain, both from the physical damage that might occur from getting hit by extra pitches and just from a mental standpoint, could take its toll over a long season and how you quantify that is tricky but it needs to be accounted for in some way yeah and there's a bit of a cliff after rendon where you have your 20 to 30 dollar third baseman uh you know rendon uh, arenado is at 30 right now devers is at 29 this is atc auction calculator jose ramirez is 27 bregman 26 rendon 24 and then there's a big gap down to Chris Bryant at, at 17-7. That's a big gap. And there's no way that I can push Rendon $9 down because of this. No, no. But I'm looking at the, the ADPs, and I'm, there's a 30-pick gap from those top five, from the Bregman, Arenado, Ramirez, Rendon, Devers cluster, to where the next group of players is Chris Bryant, Vlad Jr., Manny Machado. I think Yohan Mankata is within... 10 picks now, Chris Bryant, so we could count him as part of this cluster. And then a few multi-position guys are up in there as well, DJ LeMahieu and Max Muncy. I, I look at the projections. I just saw the bat came out on fan graphs uh, over the weekend. I think today was the day that, that Derek kind of announced it. So I ran the bat through the auction calculator. And when you see where Manny Machado shows up, and when you see where Chris Bryant shows up relative to the other top third baseman, it makes it really easy to start gravitating towards that next tier because of the discount you're getting. You, know, you can do something else in the, in the first couple of rounds, pass on the big five, as we'll call them, and really kind of focus on the next wave of third baseman because in the bat system, there's really not that much that separates them. You know, Rendon is projected at $20. Chris Bryant's at 19 Moncada's at 17.5. I mean, there's not a lot there. Machado is actually projected above Devers and Rendon. So I just think you have pretty strong cases for second tier options. I just put Machado. I just put the bat on auction calculator. I just just ran it through 15 teams, uh, bench players down to seven. I think that's the only two changes I made. Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe the 15 team does something interesting. Uh, Manny's also a shortstop, so uh, maybe there's a little bit more positional value in 15-team. I don't know. Um, uh, any, any case, you're right. There's not as much of a cliff, for sure. Uh, even if, uh, yeah, I did 12-team, just the, 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 the normal one as you when you go in. Um, and it's a much more continuous kind of drop from Alex Bredman at 23 to Chris Bryan at 18 uh, with five players in between. So... I think that's a valid point. I have been talking with Derek Cardi about the bat, the the ball, <laughs> <laughs> and how the bat should project the run environment coming into the season. 
And what it seems is that most of most projection systems are projecting the ball to be the same this upcoming season. But we have now seen from 2014 through 2019, I think we've seen at least three different balls. I mean, at least three different run environments because 2014 was pretty low. 2015, about halfway through, the new ball came in. Um, and then we know that 2019 was another ball. I think there's probably maybe four large variations in, in, in the ball because I don't think 2016, 2017, and 2018 were all exactly the same. Um, so if we've got four balls that since 2014, that would suggest that there's a high likelihood the run environment is, again, different this coming season. And how do you deal with that? You know, my suggestion was uh, that you deal with it as if the league-wide run environment is a player because players have wide swings in, in performance from year to year, or fairly wide. And you basically uh, look backwards and kind of regress the home runs per plate appearance going forward, the power going forward. Um, and so that is going to change projections. Uh, it's going to change, you know, we talked about opposite field home runs and how that, you know, the new ball didn't help everyone equally. Um, and it means that there are fewer homers projected in the bat because he's going to uh, go back beyond 2019 and use some information from 2018 and 2017. Um, and so that might explain some of the difference when you look at uh, the bat versus ATC, which uh, aggregates the different projection systems that are using the same ball environment. I, yeah. I thought that would be uh, an instructive thing to think about. You may just want to pick a different projection system if you think it's going to be exactly the same ball this year. I tend to think the ball will be more normal, which normal is kind of a moving target now. Too. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I'm not expecting a 2019 repeat. I don't have any real like, evidence for this hypothesis. Or well, we do have some evidence. Well, the, the postseason is like the main driving yeah. factor, but I just I don't think the extreme environment we saw last year was necessarily what the league wants. And while the league denies having control over the manufacturing specs. Um, <laughs> I am very dubious that they that they would not have control over such a thing. So I, I'm looking at the bats projections. They do come out generally just more conservative than the other projection systems on fan graphs so far for the players I've looked at. I've looked at a lot of young players. Uh, Luis Robert it was one that popped up in Derek's initial tweet. So I kind of looked and said, wow, like if, if that was the first projection that had come out on, on Luis Robert, his ADP, might actually look quite a bit different, um, but it also applies to, to Vlad Jr. I mean, three fewer home runs. When you see 25 projected by other systems, you see 22 from the bat. That's actually a, a decent amount of difference. Uh, the batting average is a little bit lighter. You know, the runs in the RBIs are a little bit lighter. I, I just think that's probably the system that I'm more comfortable with from how I expect for how I expect the league to sort of be in 2020 aside from the fact that i've i've generally really trusted that set of projections the last couple of years and had a lot of success doing that yeah you you you're saying that you expect more homers than you're seeing in the bat no i, I think the bats kind of leaning in the same direction i am where it's, oh, okay. it's going to be it's going to be a, a lighter offensive environment than 2019 and i yeah. i think looking further back than 2019 is the right way to set up the environment for a projection system. 
Yeah. Of course, you know, Robert opens up a different bag of worms, which is um, that Derek is uh, slightly more conservative than some when it comes to uh, rookie players. And he, uh, like, he makes a good point that you should remain tethered to what has happened before, you know, in terms of, oh, what has happened with other 22-year-olds that have struck out 25% of the time in AAA? What has, what has generally, what have their major league equivalent uh, strikeout rates been? What have their strikeout rates been in their first year? I think that's useful. And it is instructive to see that Luis Robert is headed, is projected for a 28% strikeout rate from him and everybody else has a lower one. Um, especially since the swing strike rates are high and we've talked about how there is a wide range in possible outcomes for Robert's strikeout rate in the major leagues. Um, but at the same time, I'm, I'm totally have an ear open for um, evaluators that say, you know, one person's 24% strikeout rate is not equal to another person's 24% strikeout rate. And that there are different reasons for high strikeout rates. You know, there's pitch recognition, plate recognition, uh, even bat speed, uh, that sort of stuff. And breaking it down into those components, as a scout would do, uh, can, can prepare you to better uh, maybe project a player than just using straight projections. So, little yeah. spiel. These are the most difficult players to project anyway. I mean, for, right. for all these reasons. Uh, but looking back at this this cluster, the second group of third basemen, I mean, Bryant's mm-hmm. had the shoulder issue, so that raises some questions about him. Vlad Jr. didn't meet the ridiculously high expectations in year one. He didn't fall on his face by, by any stretch of the imagination, but 15 homers in 123 games is a lot less than people were hoping for, and he only hit 272 while doing it. Ordinarily, a 20-year-old doing that would really get us pretty fired up but because the projections were very favorable for him going into last season everybody had expectations that were just you know pretty much unmet what's your expectation for vlad jr when you have to compare him to last year it was rendon versus vlad jr in adp now it's vlad jr versus brian and machado two guys with really long track records who just have a ton of floor i have a hard time passing on both of those guys to take Vlad Jr., even though I like Vlad Jr. a lot as a player. Chris Bryant's tough for me because I just feel like all the indicators took a real hit when he had the shoulder injury and he haven't really returned to where they've been before. Chris Bryant had functionally the same barrel rate as Kyle Seeger last year. Uh, Chris Bryant hit his fly balls and line drives softer than Kyle Seeger last year and softer than Vlad Guerrero. And the two numbers supposedly, what also makes it difficult is the two numbers that supposedly are the stickiest year to year, uh, in this case, kind of point different directions on Vlad. So, you know, fly ball and line drive exit velocity is supposed to be really good. It's, it's very similar to the same inputs as kind of barrel rate. And, and barrel rate is supposed to be the other one. Vlad Guerrero had the 16th best barrel rate among, th- among third basemen. He doesn't put the ball in air enough. He... His barrel rate wasn't great, but he had a 93 mile an hour, you know, fly ball exit velocity, which, uh, you know, sits him equal to Eugenio Suarez, uh, who had almost twice the barrel rate. So I think there's a lot to like about Vlad Guerrero. I think there's a lot to worry about with Chris Bryant, you know, depending on how 
the draft is going, um, I may peace out on both of them and uh, just wait for like Justin Turner, who has no uh, helium behind him and just kind of is a metronome of production year to year. Uh, you know, Miguel Sano, there's a, the, if you look at Owen Poindexter's great uh, piece about the shape of every position, he did Z scores, but you, you can see it in the projections. There's very little difference in Z score between, um, you know, even Bryant, uh, but more between Moncada and Sano. Uh, there are like eight to 10 third basemen uh, within a half a Z score of each other. Um, so, I don't know. I, I tend to kind of fade Chris Bryant a little bit, uh, which means that that would put him in that same group. And if Bryant and Guerrero are going to be way out in the front and I could wait a little bit and Chapman's going to be in the inside of that run or Turner's going to be inside of that run um, or my team would like a high batting average and Jeff McNeil, I just pass him at third. There's a lot of different options. And another thing about third base, if you wait, you have these options that can you can plug into certain needs. So, you know, as your draft goes on, for the most part, you you start having needs like at the beginning. You're just like, I'm going to get the best players I can uh, either I can afford or, you know, the snake draft gives me. And then at some point you look at your team, you go, wow, I have no stolen bases or wow. You know, I really don't have a second baseman. And I feel like third base follows that completely. If you if you can get in on the first five or six, do it. But. Bryant and Vlad Guerrero sit in that weird place is like, am I really going to invest a high thing here when I could wait a little bit and then just plug in, you know, somebody that, that fits my needs later. Um, so I have a feeling I won't have a lot of Bryant or Vlad Guerrero. It's a funny little spot in terms of ADP. If you look at the alternatives, you could pay the premium for JT Real Muto around that same time and go with the first catcher off the board. Uh, you could try to get a slight discount on John Carlos Stanton you could go after some pitching, you know, Lucas Giolito, Clayton Kershaw, Aaron Nola in that range. You could break the seal on relievers and, and pop Josh Hader in that spot. I mean, those are the alternative paths as you yeah. can say, okay, I'm not going to take a third baseman, so what am I going to do? Yeah, if I'm waiting on pitching, like I, I, I think I will this year, then I will want a high number two. So I'm likely to take a high number two there. All right, so you're going to get the second pitcher in that spot. Although I will say Stanton longer. also. The, the price is dropping on Stanton, and um, the more it drops, the more uh, attractive he gets. Yeah, it's pretty interesting, too. I mean, when you start looking at just the hitter projections as a whole and, and kind of say, okay, how, how, how high is Stanton in projections, which generally have been kind to him throughout his career, he's still a $20 player in those same settings. So he's a mm -hmm. tick above Bryant right now. Uh, if if you look at Stanton and say, well, what's what's still the best case scenario for him? It's probably still a better best case scenario than what you'd expect from Chris Bryant at this point. Yeah. What about Machado, though, real quick? I know you're kind of steering away from Bryant and Vlad Jr. at that price. Does Machado deserve to be clustered in there, or is he getting discounted too much coming off of a, a relative down year in his first year at the Padres? Yeah, it's really interesting. I, I didn't want to say that name. That's why I said five or six, too. Um, <laughs> the it is the it, he seems like I have these uh, players that I call a projections play where 
it was a little bit like Colin McHugh last year, where all the projection systems liked him, you know, and the ADP didn't. And so, you know, I think I had a couple, um, I think I had a couple Colin McHugh shares, but I didn't in the end because when I analyzed the situation, I just felt like the depth chart didn't favor him to get that many innings. In this case, though, he's a position player. He's a projections play. There's some evidence that he underperformed his barrels. Alex Chamberlain uh, did some stuff about deserved barrel rate, and he, you know, he he should have had more barrels. And the projections love him. And there's no reason to worry in terms of uh, depth chart stuff. And honestly, I don't even think health is really a worry. So, and his floor is super super high. I think it's way. I think it's higher than Bryant's. You know, so I, I kind of like Manny. If if we're gonna lump Manny in with the Manny, Chris Bryant, Vlad, I may jump for Manny there. Plus, there's a little bit of position eligibility help. I mean, if you get a shortstop, if Trey Turner is your first shortstop and Manny Machado is your third baseman later, is you know it almost seems inevitable that Trey Turner goes down for a little bit. You know, boom, Machado's your shortstop. I like having corner middle options yeah, in terms too. of overlap more than I like even having corner and outfield because I always think outfield help is easier to find on the yeah. wire. There's a better variety of the categories you're going to get from players on the wire in the outfield as well. There are fourth outfielders that play enough to use in short stints. Exactly. So I think Machado might creep up a little bit with this new system with the bat being added to the other projection systems the the wisdom of the crowd changes a little bit i think people are going to realize he's under projected his adp is going to creep up a little it's not going to shoot up into like the second round or anything crazy like that but uh, i think he's going to hover right around that pick 50 range once we get further into march uh, the other guy in that group yolan mancata I, I think there are there are believers and there are skeptics that are pretty divided on him coming off of last season uh, Mr. Red Ink, as I've called him before, based on his stat cast page, just covered in, in hard hit balls. Everything you're looking for from a hitter to hold up a, a really nice slash line, he does. And cut the K rate down a bit last year, too. Got it down from 33.4 to 27.5%. Uh, didn't walk as much as he did in the past, but still walked enough. 7% walk rate's not terrible. Where do we go from here with Yohan Mankata, a guy who was supposed to be really good and is actually still younger than you might think for a guy who's been around for a few years. Yeah, I think he actually has a better year in him. And, you know, one of these next two years, I think, is going to be better. At 24, you know, by definition, he's maybe two years younger than Peak. Um, although it's 24 and eight months. So, you know, he's one of these next two seasons could be his peak season, um, you know, according to you know, aging curve research, but also just look at his plate discipline and look just what you said. He became more aggressive and kind of battled his way through the, the strikeout rate um, by cutting the walk rate. But I think selective aggression is what you get when you're at your peak. So maybe he puts together a season where he has the 10% walk rate and like a 25% strikeout rate. If he can do that, um, you know, I think he can repeat or at least have a really good batting average and maybe improve the power numbers, take more advantage of his power, take more advantage of what was last year the sixth best barrel rate 
uh, among third basemen, something that was on par with, uh, you know, somebody like Matt Chapman. Um, you know, uh, why not? Why in that part can't he have a 35 homer season? And amazingly, he only played 132 games last year. I, I kind of just forgot that he missed some time. So uh, if you get him up closer to 150 games, that alone last year may have brought him right up to that 30 homer mark. So I, I'm with you. I think there is still uh, one more level that Yohan Moncada can reach. Happy to draft him at that price. Uh, the guys I mentioned that are multi-position eligible, clustered in this range, DJ LeMayhew, Max Muncy, Jeff McNeil, for LeMahieu and Muncie, their eligibility comes also at first base and second base. For McNeil, it's second base and outfield in addition to being eligible at third. Uh, Muncie, I'm a little bit more... A little bit more. I'm a little more concerned about Muncie right now with Jock Peterson still being on the roster in Los Angeles. That could change any day. They could come up with some other trade. Who knows? But it's crowded in Los Angeles. And even though he's hit lefties really well... In each of the last two seasons, you just wonder, it's like, is it Gavin Lux? Is it Muncie? Is it both of them who are going to sit or occasionally with you know, Jack Peterson being the guy that always sits for one of their righties coming off the bench? How do you see his playing time shaking out? Because I look at LeMahieu and McNeil, and I don't have those same playing time concerns that I'm beginning to have for Muncie. LeMahieu? Yeah, I think LeMahieu is going to play a lot, even though Andujar is back. I don't know if I like the price on him, but I, I just think they're gonna they're gonna run him out there every day. I guess so. Lemayhew's better defender than Andohar, so I just I just see a possibility of like a Ursula collapse, but that's only good for Lemayhew. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. But we talked about the Dodger thing. Um, I think that they're gonna fight, figure out a way to do that trade. They wanted to get rid of that money, you know. And the Angels wanted him. I mean, like, that was just the kind of thing where they just got... Artie Moreno apparently just got frustrated. Yeah, Friedman is mad as hell at, at, at Marty Moreno. And what what makes it worse is now that that trade has been out there, we, they've, like, it's been established that the Dodgers kind of wanted to cut some money. And as soon as you establish the Dodgers want to cut some money, the next person who calls says, hey, I can help you get rid of Doc Peterson. Just give me a prospect. Right. And leverage is gone. Because the yeah. deal was reported, it was out oh, there. Oh, and we have a pronunciation. Andy, screw it. Do you remember now? Paul Hayes? That's it. Paul Hayes. Andy Paul Hayes. Uh, so that's the prospect. So maybe now someone's saying, well, you know, I'm in a little bit tougher of a situation. I can't really take on this money. But if you added another prospect. <laughs> that was my executive voice. That was, that was your goonish executive voice. <laughs> I don't know which executive that was supposed to be. <laughs> oh, man. Probably like Farhan coming in and just being like, I can take him off your hands. Then you got to be a little more sly for the Farhan voice, I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think, I think he, he'd make that offer with a like a devilish smile. It'd be like a very yeah. friendly, tempting sort of voice. I really respect Farhan. I, I You know, uh, I, he's made some missteps this year, but in terms of um, the way he's trying to get out of the bottom and the things he's doing internally as well as uh, in terms of transactions and stuff. I, I really respect him. And then what's great too is that, uh, you know, I've, I've tried to talk, I've, I've interviewed Billy Bean a, b- a bunch and he's, you know, he's, he gives good quotes and stuff, but he also like rolls his eyes at me a lot and, you know, tells me straight up he can't answer a question. Whereas Farhan gets, will get a question he can't really answer and find a way to answer it. 
um, with like some, like you said, with some smiles and like, uh, he's better, a better media, uh, presence, I think. Part of that job, I think now is handling the media the way a politician might handle the media, mm-hmm. right? Like just smoothing things over, redirecting, you know, putting, you know, being like, oh, this wasn't a money dump. This was a, you know, finding, finding different ways to classify things, you know, pushing, pushing with the media, even, you know, off the record, uh, pushing them towards certain reads of certain situations. Right. I mean, flexibility is probably the, the blanket word in, in Milwaukee. Yeah. Like David Stearns can do anything and he can use flexibility as his reasoning. And that <laughs> satisfies a lot of people. It just, oh, we got rid of this guy that you all liked, but we did it for flexibility. Oh, we added this guy. We added Brock Holt unexpectedly, but now we have flexibility on the infield. It's funny. That hasn't been working so well for Chaim Bloom in Boston. <laughs> no, the word flexibility does not work quite as well. In does Boston. not travel from market to market. <laughs> it, it helps. It helps when you're uh, in the Midwest and your team has never won a World Series. Expectations are a little lower. Yeah. But so who do you let's say let's put all these guys. Let's take Moncada out because he's young and has that U word. Um, and let's put these sort of veterans uh, and let's take Chapman out. He's kind of got an established level. So let's like put the, the, the boring veterans together. Guriel, Suarez, Moustakis, Turner, Sano. Sano's first for me because the raw power is ridiculous. Yeah. I think the, the trick to rostering a player like Sano, it's the same as with Joey Gallo, by the way, this is just a broad tip for using a really low average, big power player. It takes one smart maneuver to, to kind of just offset it. You could do a real fun thing with like Sano and McNeil. Exactly. Right. It, it, Zola, a few years ago, he was like, I'm going to draft DJ LeMayhew and Joey Gallo together and yeah. watch what happens. <laughs> and you look at it and you divide the two players, combine production in half, and you go, oh, hey, look, in the seventh round, this was a couple of years ago, in the seventh round of the eighth round, you just got two players who combined are 250 average like, like, <laughs> yeah they're 250 average but there's just power and speed like you just got two fourth round bats in round yeah. seven and eight because you put two players together with complementary skill sets and you're not you're not backed into too much of a, a corner if you take Sano, uh because and I, maybe Guriel doesn't fit but still Guriel kind of fits Guriel McNeil and LeMahieu give you three options to uh, multi-position options to pair with him. Right. Yeah. That kind of do the other thing. There, there's a, a few ways it works, and it's early enough in your draft, or obviously in an auction, you can just go out and get the other guys that you want to pair with them too. Uh, so I, I just think there are, there are ways to make that work pretty easily. So I probably value Sano as much as anybody does, mostly because I'm comfortable building my roster that way. Like I, I have a plan for that. So he's first for me. Turner Loki might be second of that bunch because you said throw Chapman out, right? Suarez, if he were healthy, would probably be ahead of Sano. I, my argument against Suarez is pretty simple. Why take the injured guy when we're talking about a position with so much depth? You know, the shoulder yeah. doesn't seem that bad. Could make opening day. Things look pretty good right now. But why expose yourself to that risk when Mike Moustakis is also there? He could have right. comparable numbers and he doesn't have a shoulder injury going into the season. Yeah, I think I think your exposure on currently injured players should be minimal. There there are situations where it becomes a value. 
and but I don't think that it should be a strategy. <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, Mike Clevenger, you know, he's dropping a lot, could be ready by early May. Uh, he's dropping behind guys like Luis Severino, uh, who, how much do you, do you expect them to have a full six months or do you expect them to be a five month pitcher as well? Um, and, uh, you could, you could take advantage of that. But however, like I was thinking last night, as I was falling asleep, you know, about labor, (laughs) (laughs) but I do. Wow. Um, and I was like, this is 40. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like, wow, would it be ballsy or dumb to take Luis Severino and Mike Clevenger as my aces in labor? If I had to pick a lane and choose one label or the other, you're going dumb. No, I'd, I'd say that that's probably ballsy. Uh, I mean, the, well, anyway, the risky either way. <laughs> Those are both yeah. synonyms of risk. So <laughs> there's risk all over the place with pitching. Yeah, and in this case, um, I think Suarez fine. If Suarez falls to where Eduardo Escobar is, then he's fallen too far. Yeah, what's up with Escobar? He doesn't come up in many conversations. I don't see people writing about him that much. He kind of just had this really useful season a year ago. It didn't cost much, and his price is obviously up compared to where it was a year ago. But I don't really get the sense that anybody believes he's hitting 30 homers again with that kind of run production. I mean, you look at the projections, they're kind of in agreement. 257 to 266 is the spread for, for batting average. 25 to 27 homers, 80 to 84 runs, and 87 to 93 RBIs. It's a really nice player after pick 100. Yeah. Um, it's Justin Turner Suarez, with more Suarez volume. hit like, what, like 48 last year or something? Yeah, he hit a ton, 49. and a lot of them were later in the season, too. 49. I mean, that's 22 homers. That's why I think, you know, it's 22 homer difference. In terms of, okay, we should talk projections uh, for Suarez. So he's projected to hit 40. Um, so that's still a 13 homer difference. Even if you get rid of three to five for missed time or something, you're still talking about like a 10 homer difference. Do, so you, ding him, Suarez. do you ding him a couple more, though, for the possibility that of the injury impacts power. him? Yeah. Yeah, but the. Like you're still talking about five more. I, I like. I think you'd have to give me odds for me to take Escobar over, like to take Escobar's home run total over Suarez. You'd have to give me like a fair amount of odds. Sure, like two and a half or three to one. Yeah. So that says to me, if Suarez falls to where Escobar is being drafted, I'm taking Suarez. Uh, just a, on a stat cast front. Uh, Escobar had the same barrel rate as Colin Moran. Uh, uh, Colin <laughs> this Moran, is not good. <laughs> uh, uh, it, it goes it, it, like it goes: Michael Franco, Gio Urshela, Colin Moran, Eduardo Escobar, Evan Longoria. I mean, that's not where you want to live. No, it is not. Um, basically, functionally below average for like a starting player. All right, so Suarez over Escobar. I'm fine with that. I'm not dropping him lower than that, but Sano over Suarez, Moustakis over Suarez right now. Obviously, Donaldson and Chapman over him. Yeah. All all pretty clear 
ways to account for his absence at this point. Uh, Justin Turner is that guy. Like, if you're waiting, if you're missing out because you're chasing other things, or you just yeah. think, uh, even if I miss out on Turner, I like some of the guys I can mix and match with. I'll be fine at third base. I like Turner a lot. I think there is still at least one more good year in his bat. I have no issue having him as my main third baseman because it assumes I have strength somewhere else because I was paying up for other things earlier. Before you get down to Turner, though, you've got these other guys, Scott Kingery, Tommy Edmond, multi-position guys who I think bring a lot of their value from stolen bases. Playing time could become an issue for both of those guys because if Alec Baum comes up for Philadelphia, I think Kingery moves back into that super utility role. And I think the super utility role is kind of the cap on what Edmund's going to do playing time-wise this season, even with the fact that the Cardinals haven't replaced Marcelo Zuna because I expect Dylan Carlson to ultimately take that spot. Yeah, and I just I just keep thinking Yasiel Puig is going to go there. No, I, I can't picture it. I like I need even if Cut Ford drew a Cardinals hat on Yasiel Puig. <laughs> this doesn't look like anything to me. <laughs> no, I wouldn't even be able to see it. It wouldn't work. <laughs> All right. Does not All compute. Right. They they have the need for sure, but it's just it's a total long shot to me. But you have you know, JD Davis kind of jammed into that group where Justin Turner is too. If you could guarantee equal playing time. I like J.D. Davis quite a bit. I think the Mets have a little more of a crowd than most people are willing to acknowledge at this point. Yeah. The Cespedes, is, you know, taking healthy hacks and telling the media off in his, in the first couple of days of spring training makes you think maybe he'll, he'll actually be around and be relevant. So if that does happen, it gets crowded really quick because then, you know, J.D. Davis... Is platooning with Cespedes, and Dom Smith is in the minors. I mean, I think something like that would be the only way to do it. I mean, it's good that Davis is a. Let me get this right. He lefty. No, he's a righty. So there's not really a platoon situation, but. You know, and Dave, Dave, that risk does make it interesting. I was thinking, like, is is there a firewall for you where you're like, oh, okay, if it gets down to like the last two or three third basemen on the board are Justin Turner, Eduardo Escobar, and Max Muncy, I'm gonna take Turner. Like the firewall idea, like I I don't want what's what comes behind him. Um, I could see that, except I'd look down to Brian Anderson and J.D. Davis and say J.D. Davis and say. You know, oh, well, those guys are good. I mean, if Muncie's still hanging around and I'm looking at Turner and Escobar, I'd probably go Muncie first, maybe Turner second, Escobar third. Like, that's probably the way I'd, I'd break those three guys down. Yeah, but I uh, but I could see lumping them together as being like the last acceptable third baseman, starting third baseman for me. Yeah, because in mean, most. Ryan McMahon's kind of in the same situation as J.D. Davis. McMahon's a lefty, so he'd be on the big side of platoon. Has the multi-position eligibility. Gets to play half his games in Colorado. I, I look at McMahon at that price and think, okay, like if he... But we all want Hampson to take his job. <laughs> I mean, I don't. I, I want McMahon <laughs> to be that guy. 
I don't know. I, I just think that's a that's a really weird dead spot on the third base list after Turner. Like based on yeah. ADP anyway. Like that's where the line is. Like even though I like Davis and McMahon, playing time can become a concern there. Hunter Dozier, Brian Anderson is a weird player too. He doesn't come up in a lot of columns. The Marlins. They got a bunch of guys they're trying to move around. There was a report yesterday that they're going to try and play Jonathan VR in center field. Anderson can play third base. I think they want to just keep him there. Like That's what's leading VR to the outfield is they're not going to play VR at third. Is Brian Anderson good, and is he underpriced right now? I mean, the counting stats last year, for as much as he played, were okay. Like He played 126 games, 66 RBIs, 57 runs scored. Kind of a, a weak lineup that got a little better. He gets on base. He's not a batting average liability. And he showed a little more power last year, I think, even just beyond the rabbit ball. So is he kind of the the cheap option that if you were to wait for someone and then get sniped on everybody, like he'd be your next option, your plan C at third base? Yeah, that's the who I was identifying there at the bottom. I mean, like Yandy Diaz is my my holy crap, I didn't pick anybody. <laughs> um, Brian Anderson and J.D. Davis are like, you know... I don't want to get to holy crap. I didn't pick anyone. <laughs> and uh, King Reed McMahon. I think King Reed McMahon to me are more uh, guys I would rather take at like util or CI or MI uh, with the idea that they'll be moved around a lot for my squad. Um, that would feel better about rostering McMahon to King Reed if if I didn't feel like I had to dedicate a, a spot to them. And how do you think Hunter Dozier stacks up to J.D. Davis? Like, oh, but wait, I had a, I had a Brian Anderson thing real quick. Sure. He's it, really interesting because he's really boring looking. I'm not talking about his looks, but yeah, <laughs> statistically, he's pretty boring looking. It's like, you know, average walk rate, average strikeout rate, slightly above average ISO, kind of averages type average, just, you know, five stolen bases, you know, just like, okay at everything. Uh, but look at what a park can do. Brian Anderson and Nolan Arenado have, so Brian Anderson has a better max EV than Nolan Arenado. Brian Anderson has a better average exit velocity than Nolan Arenado. Brian Anderson has a better fly ball line drive exit velocity than Nolan Arenado. Brian Anderson has a better barrel rate than Nolan Arenado. Hmm. Detecting a pattern here. He has a better ninety-five. He has a better hard hit rate, ninety-five mile an hour plus. So, Brian Anderson has a terrible home park. They did. Did they work on the fences again this offseason? I know they've got a new hitting coach. I mean, there's there's some things changing there. I think you're right. Though. I think they were moving the fences in this year. Synthetic grass, outfield adjustments being adjusted in center and right center. I mean, he's a right-handed hitter, so that won't help him as much as it would help him if he were a lefty, but it doesn't hurt. But it looks it looks like they brought it in like five, six feet. Oh, that's an interesting little a little thing there. So maybe Brian Anderson's, uh, maybe he's the true firewall. But um, it is funny how I don't actually, like there's a lot of late third basemen that exist on the rankings, but don't exist in my heart. You just pretend like they're not even there. Yeah, like, like why take Evan Longoria? In most mixed leagues, I don't think you do. I mean, I think you could use him as a corner infield filler if you've got some injuries. 
yeah. something along those lines. Who do you like, if anyone, really late? We're talking after pick 300 in terms of ADP. So we're even past Starlin Castro and kind of in the Travis Shaw, Kyle Seeger, Matt Carpenter, Michael Franco getting a fresh start, Ezrubel Cabrera, the old standby. Like, Where's Nick Solak? He, if he's UT only, I would assume he'll qualify at some positions a couple weeks into the season. So he, he's probably like a fringy like 250 to 300 range pick in, in most leagues. Yeah, so even later than that, Jamer Candelario. Yeah, I do actually. I've been looking at him. We just picked him in Devil's Rejects. In there's twenty, there's twenty teams, twenty eight keepers, forty five roster slots, and we just picked him in like the seventh round or sixth round of the redraft. So that's really deep. Uh, but he's a twenty six year old uh, that could strike out close to league average next year, walk more than league average. It's just that his bad ball stats are very vanilla. I don't even know if he shows up on the first page. Oh, he's 30th in barrel rate uh, among among third basemen. And uh, he just doesn't hit the ball very hard. I'm just hoping that the plate discipline can lead to making the most out of the balls he does hit. There's still a little chance of that happening. Uh, but I think he's more of a mono-league uh, low-dollar uh, volume play, hopefully, and hope that Isaac Paredes doesn't isn't ready this year or doesn't come up right away. John John Birdie uh, is an interesting sort of plug-and-play all-around the infield uh, player, and uh, but the I guess what's a little bit annoying is that he's actually going to do that. He's not he's not slated as a starter at any at any position. Um, so as fun as it would be to get those steals, I think he's kind of like a really deep head-to-head bench player, where you can hope that at the end of the at the end of the week, if you need some extra stolen bases, you can kind of plug him in when he plays. Um, I don't know, man. It's it's a really top-heavy position. It's not like Alec Baum is the prospect that's going to come up this year, probably. And he's either going to come up when Segura is hurt or Kingery uh, doesn't take any advancements in terms of getting on base, I think. Yeah, or if they're still having trouble in center field and they want to play Kingery in center field more, maybe they bring up Bohm then if he's raking in the minors. And one thing that's really fun about Bohm is that he adds uh, power with a really uh, really small strikeout rate for a power hitter. Uh, so, so he hasn't really done the high batting average thing every year, but that combination leads to high batting averages. So he could come up to the major leagues and be like a 280 hitter with, you know, 25, 30 home run power or more. I mean, he's, he's a pretty good player. Um, you know, Tommy LaStella, you know, I think that in this, in this, if the ball is the same, Tommy LaStella, uh, you know, he's can use his contact skills to, to hit 20, 25 homers the one thing is that uh, right now they have Tommy Ostella and David Fletcher uh, penciled in at the same position. I think Lestella wrestles away that playing time. Maybe I'm underestimating David Fletcher, but I think what Lestella was doing last season before that injury was really interesting and provides more overall value. Yeah, and Fletcher... You know, he's listed as the backup shortstop. So Fletcher could really be a guy who just plays all over. You know, especially since right now Brian Goodwin is their starting right fielder. So, you know, without a, the jock trade, I think Fletcher will play in right field some before uh, Joe Adele is ready. So, yeah, 
Listella. There you go. I think Listella is a good one. I did have that question. I threw it to you earlier. I forgot to follow up on it, so I'll hit it now real quick. J.D. Davis versus Hunter Dozier. I mean, Dozier was a, a late breakout last year. I would say he has fewer playing time concerns as you look at the way the Royals depth chart is built right now. What do you think about Hunter Dozier as a guy that's kind of in the back end of the top 200? Well, Hunter Dozier has some playing time concerns considering that uh, Michael Franco's there now. So I guess Dozier could play in right field. We've talked about this a little bit. So they're, they're okay. So he's probably okay. One thing I did notice with Hunter Dozier is one of his big breakouts last year came from plate discipline. But if you look at the graphs, the sort of daily, you can go to fan graphs and do by game, uh, 15 game, 15 game rolling graphs of anything. Um, and if you put uh, O swing on there, um, by the end of the season, he was uh, reaching at everything again like he had in 2018. So some of those early gains in reach rate, uh, a lot of them were gone by midseason, and then they were totally gone uh, at the end of the season. So I think that he's uh, highly likely to to kind of revert to that like five percent strikeout rate, five uh, percent walk rate, thirty thirty percent strikeout rate time guy that he's been in the past. And that could, I think, make him vulnerable later in the year to falling into a platoon if they find a left-handed hitting option to play with him at first base. I'm not convinced Ryan O'Hearn is that guy. They seem to be really high on Ryan O'Hearn. I don't see it. Um, so I think as the season begins, Dozier's probably the primary first baseman unless things track the way you described and he gives them a reason to play somebody else uh, against right-handed starters. The uh, other question I want to throw out there is uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, you mentioned Colin Moran and how bad his stat cast metrics were. They have a prospect, Cabrian Hayes, former first rounder, didn't tear up AAA at all, but he's been going, you know, one level per year through the Pirates system. He has power, a little, just a little bit of power, has some speed. He was 12 for 13 as a base dealer last year. He's never struck out 20% at any level. And he's walked a lot. So he's got a really good approach at the plate. And the belief has been that he will develop power over time. He's still been young for the level everywhere he's played, too. He's probably not a guy you're drafting in mixed leagues. I think in NL only, you could think about him and you know wait for him to get the call. Do you think Brian Hayes comes up and stays up? I mean, he's a great defender, so that alone could just drive his playing time once the Pirates give him the opportunity. I think the pirate with the pirates. I think you kind of want to assume that you can I think you want to kind of play some games in terms of put yourself in the general manager's feet and, and put him in his feet. In his pants. <laughs> Another pants. one. <laughs> Wait, but put him in his pants. It sounds worse. Yeah, it's worse. Shoes. Shoes. Pants. shoes, shoes. You know? That's it. Shoes. <laughs> you wear another man's shoes. You don't wear another man's pants. <laughs> That'd be weird. Uh, ben Charrington, I want your pants. So. Uh, I'm wearing Ben Charrington's pants. I know that I don't really have a fire under my ass in year one. You know, year one, I can always use the excuse, well, I was just figuring out who to hire and fire, figure out what we were doing, trying to improve internal processes, uh, read, uh, read between the lines, trying to lose a lot. And so uh, Colin Moran is like your perfect lose a lot starting third baseman. And I don't, I don't mean to disparage him as a player. 
like obviously he he does some things right and he's been a league average bat and you know that's 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 great for him but he's a really bad base runner pretty bad defender gives a lot of it back um with uh, the secondary stuff you know and uh so i just don't think i think they're just going to plug him in all year i don't think i don't think uh, yeah i think hayes i think even bringing hayes up with the new roster rules the 26 man roster rules where you can only was it 28 in september yeah i think it's 28 in september even bringing him up there and starting his clock at all only if the clamoring in 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 pittsburgh starts right away and they're just like you're just as bad as neil huntington you didn't do anything then maybe he can start bringing up the the young guys and be like look we have a lot of great young guys let's check them out yeah i I don't know i mean i think He's the kind of player. He's not going to cost them a fortune if they bring him up. Yeah, true. He might not. He might not come up and hit a bunch of homers and hit three hundred or whatever. Yeah, and he can he can pick it at third. So you know why not let him learn a bit on the job, and then by the time you've got more pieces around him, you know if he's your third baseman or not, or you at least know where he fits into your plan. Is he going to develop that extra power and become a key part of your offense, or is he more of a bottom half of the lineup guy who you know is a plus on the other side? He helps your pitching staff by playing elite defense it, it, it tells other young players weird things if cabrian hayes is like gets a full year triple a again yeah that i mean that would be a really bad look when a very replacement level sort of player yeah. is collecting so much time at the big league level so i think we'll see him pretty early in the first half as always you can reach us via email rates and barrels at the be sure to spell out the word and if you go that route you can find eno on twitter at eno saris you can find me at Derek van riper we do have two other fantasy baseball podcasts that we're running this season here at the athletic fantasy baseball in 15 with al melkier michael beller and myself runs every weekday morning at 6 a.m eastern and the athletic fantasy baseball podcast that show drops new episodes every monday wednesday and friday afternoon opposite this show That's going to wrap things up for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you on Thursday. Thanks for listening. 